I love Mexican food. Uh, like it is, it is delicious. If you were to ask my wife and I what our favorite genre of food is, uh, we'd probably go back and forth a little bit between Indian food and Mexican food. Uh, but if, if pressed, we would probably land at, at Mexican food as being our favorite. Ever since moving uh, back down to BC, uh, people who know that we love Mexican food have said, oh, you guys need to try Taco Fino. It came with very high reviews, and so one time we finally found ourselves heading to to the restaurant Taco Fino to, to enjoy a supper together. And as we're heading there, I even looked it up on the Google to check the reviews, and, and even on there, 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 was, there was good reviews. And so we had very high expectations. We enter into the restaurant, and the atmosphere was, was pretty nice. I sit down, and we ended up ordering uh, the queso and the vegetarian nachos. Now, I'm not, I'm not a vegetarian, but I am Mennonite, um, and I'm too cheap to, to pay the $4 for the meat. Uh, but the, 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 the queso came, and it was in this uh, nice little like cast iron dish, and there were these delicious, warm, fresh-baked uh, like tortilla chips, and like, it, was, it was amazing. Like, it, was, it was really good. Uh, and then the nachos came. And I was a little bit skeptical of vegetarian nachos. Like, can you make nachos taste good without, without meat? Well, apparently you can. Uh, so these nachos have three layers of cheese. There's, uh, I think, Monterey Jack and some cheddar that's melted and then some like fresh feta on top of it. There's this like sour cream sauce that's spread all over it. And there's like pickled uh, veggie things. I don't know what they are, I'm not a foodie. Uh, but these nachos were, were absolutely incredible. So we went into this experience at Taco Fino expecting big things. Uh, the reviews were great. And we were left thinking that our experience was even better than, than what we had hoped for. This doesn't happen very often, right? Like take 2021, for example. We had such high hopes for you, 2021, and you've let us all down. But things happening that are better than expected is not uncommon. And I tell you this story for one simple reason. I hope that the Spirit of God will help all of us see as we study this passage that Jesus is simply better. I don't know what your expectations of him are or your understanding of, of the gospel, that he's what, he, what he means to you. I hope this passage heightens that, helps us see that, that Jesus is simply better. Here's how, how I want to do that. We're going to read uh, the story in, in Luke chapter 4, verses uh, 1 to 13. It's the story of Jesus being tested in the wilderness. And I want to highlight a few things as we go through that. Uh, two points about why Jesus is better, and then, and then I'm going to try to apply it to our lives and ask the question, so, so what is that? mean for us. So let's read it together and then we'll jump into talking a little bit about the text. Luke chapter 4 verse 1 says this, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days and at the end of them he was hungry. I appreciate Luke adding that detail in there. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple if you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, 
he left him until an opportune time. The first thing I want us to see from this story is that Jesus is a better representative. Let me explain. Luke goes out of his way here to help us give the context that this is happening right after the baptism of Jesus. So you'll see at the beginning of of this story and in verse 1, we see that Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit and he's leaving the Jordan. So so Jesus was, was baptized in the Jordan River And upon coming out of the water, it says that the Holy Spirit descended upon him uh, like a dove. And God from the heavens said, this is my son, whom I'm well pleased. And Pastor Jeff, a few weeks ago, uh, helped us understand that what that meant was that that Jesus, the the king of of the universe, the the king of the nations, has come. And he's going to be, be beginning his mission now. And so Jesus, Luke helps us understand, heads straight from the baptism into the wilderness. See, what we need to know is that Jesus is not on some spiritual retreat or just going for a nice stroll uh, where he's trying to get closer to God through, through fasting or whatever. He's on a mission to confront the devil in the wilderness. Still dripping wet from his baptism, Jesus heads into a confrontation with the devil. Why? It's a good question. John Milton is a poet from the 1600s. He's famous for his poem uh, titled Paradise Lost. It's a great poem, uh, considered one of the the greatest pieces of literature ever. Um, I've never read it. It's 12 books long. I'm not reading a 12-book long poem. That's ridiculous in my opinion. But anyway, the, the, the poem is about how through Adam's sin and through Adam's disobedience, paradise was lost. So because of the fall of man, we've lost access to to the paradise, to communion with God. Legend has it that someone approached John Milton uh, after he he released his poem and said, John, this poem's great, uh, but it it talks a lot about what was lost in Adam and doesn't talk a lot about what was regained because of of what Christ did. And so apparently that that stuck with John and he, he thought about it. And a few years later, he released another poem called Paradise Regained. It wasn't as popular, and it was only five books long this time, but here's how that poem starts, Paradise Regained. John Milton writes, I, who a while ago sang of the paradise lost by one man's disobedience, now sing to all mankind of a paradise regained. Through one man's firm obedience, fully tried and tested, the tempter was foiled. With all his cunning, defeated and repulsed, and Eden was raised in that empty wilderness. What's interesting about Paradise Regained is the story that John Milton chooses to be the foundation of the poem. You see, Paradise Lost was a a reflection of the Garden of Eden story where Adam and Eve stood before the serpent, tempted and failed miserably. To, to, To highlight what was regained in Christ, John Milton chooses this passage, Luke chapter 4 to be the foundational text. And he's right to do so. See, what what John Milton is suggesting is that what Luke is helping us understand is that the temptation in the wilderness story should help us see that a new and better Adam has arrived on the scene. Jesus has arrived and he's going to confront the devil to show the world that a new and better representative has arrived on the scene. Now, Let's hit pause for one second because I think we need to do a little bit of theology to understand this. The language in Paradise Regained that Milton uses is very similar to what Paul talks about in the book of Romans. So here's what it says in Romans chapter 5, verse 19. 
For just as through the disobedience of one man, Adam, paradise lost, the many were made sinners. So also through the obedience of the one man, Jesus Christ, the many will be made righteous, paradise regained. The idea that both Milton and Paul are getting at is this idea of, of federal headship. Uh, to say that that humanity is represented by one person. So be, because Adam sinned, therefore we are all guilty and condemned because of his sin. Now, we don't like that. The individualism in us just kind of bubbles up and says, that's not fair. Like, I, I want to represent myself. I don't want to be represented by Adam. And, and that's fair. But, but let me give you a modern day example of kind of how this, this idea of federal headship kind of works. So when I was younger, I played football. Now, if you know my physical stature, you were probably thinking you were the water boy or maybe the kicker, and I probably should have been. But no, I, I was the quarterback. And so this first year playing, I was one of the oldest kids on the team. I was slightly athletic. I didn't have the biology to, to, be fo to play football, but I, I could throw a little bit. So they, they stuck me at quarterback. I was the captain of the team, which meant I get to walk on the field at the beginning of the game, and when the referee would, would throw the coin in the air, I got to choose heads or tails, and, and what I chose had ramifications for the rest of the team. I had to, to call plays and make sure I distributed the ball to the right person at the right time. I, in other words, I, I was important. Here's the problem. I wasn't very good. Our team won exactly zero games that year, and I don't think we actually scored one offensive touchdown. That's horrible. But here's the thing, because I was terrible, because I was a bad quarterback, a loser, if you will, our entire team was losers because of it. This is what Adam and John Milton are highlighting. Because of one man's disobedience, because of what Adam did in the garden, we are all guilty by association to him. I don't like that. I, like, I, don't, I don't think that's fair. Like, there was kids on the team when I was the quarterback who were like, let me try. He sucks. Like, clearly there's someone better who can play quarterback and lead us down, down at least one victory or that we could score one touchdown. I think right now all of us, including myself, think that we're like pandemic, armchair pandemic experts, right? Like we all know, like, if I was Bonnie Henry, I could do it this way. Because our elected officials, we think that we could do it better if only we had their authority or their power. This is, this is how we think. And yet we need to be careful. Because the opposite of the idea of federal headship is true. Or, or to put it another way, when, when things aren't going our way, we don't like the idea. But what if we're represented by someone really good? You see, the very next year of playing football, I, I got bumped up into the next division because of my age. I was in junior bantam, it was called. And that was made up of three different ages, and, and I was the youngest and, and one of the, the worst players on the team that year. Our, our quarterback, his name was Matt. He was, he was very good. We had one strategy the whole year, give the ball to Matt. And we won. We won the first game and the second game. We went undefeated through the entire season until we got to the championship game. So our coach had basically two things that he needed to do in that championship game in order for us to win. Number one, he had to give the ball to Matt. And number two, he needed to make sure that all the kids who weren't very good were allowed to play one play so all the parents wouldn't complain that their kid didn't get to play in the championship game. So towards the end of the game, my turn came to play in my one play. We were up by a couple scores and he thought, you know what, I think, Jesse, you go out there, you play as a defensive end, which is hilarious with my stature, and just do whatever, just don't, don't suck too bad, and, and, and 
and then you'll come off the field and, and we'll still win the game. And so I did, I trotted out there and I lined up against like this 300 pound man and here's me like prepubescent little scrawny kid being like, don't eat me, uh, but said hut and I ran at him and he like pushed me over and then as soon as the whistle blew because the play was over, the coach was like, get off the field, get off the field, get off the field. And we won. And so I sit here today as a Abbotsford Hall of Fame provincial champion football player. It's a true fact. You can go to the Abbotsford Hall of Fame. Our team's picture is in there because we were one of the only times that the Abbotsford Falcons have gone undefeated through an entire season. Now, I have no issues that Matt was my quarterback. Actually, I kind of liked being part of that team. And I can say that my team won the championship because of my association with Matt. See, now here's the challenge. This is what Paul is arguing in, in Romans. That because we are represented by either Adam or Christ, we are part of that team. So I guess the challenge for us is, which way do you want it? See, we can push back at this idea of federal headship and say it's not fair because Adam's a terrible representation. But none of us complain when Christ is the head of our lives, when we're represented by him. So back to the text for a second. Luke constructs his account in a very specific way to help us see the superiority of Jesus. He's gone out of his way previously in the genealogy to show us that that Jesus is a descendant of Adam. Matthew doesn't do that. Luke didn't have to do that. But he, he wants us to see that Jesus has arrived on the scene to be this better representation. And the superiority of Jesus is shown clearly too. Think about it. So, so Adam is, is, is born a descendant of, of, of God, he's created by God, and he has this, this account or this confrontation with the devil, and he fails miserably in the garden. See, Adam is surrounded by, by excess and beauty and, and perfection and, and creation. It, like, he has everything, every good reason not to be tempted and not to give in to the devil, and yet he does. And then here's Jesus, a, a new Adam, a better Adam. And he's surrounded by, by perfection and beauty and no, he's not. He's in a wilderness. He's hungry. He's lonely. He's tired. There's no food. There's no water. And this new and better Adam stands up to the devil time and time again as a better representative. So the first thing I want us to see about this text is that Luke is showing us that Jesus is a better Adam. He's a better representative for us. And now let's, let's go look and, and let's, let's just dwell and, and appreciate the faithfulness that Jesus shows to, to God the Father through these temptations that, that Satan will give him. So, so here's the first test that Satan gives. He looks at, at Jesus and he sees that he's hungry, that he's been fasting for 40 days. And he says, if you're the son of God, why don't you tell this stone to, to turn into bread? And Jesus answers him, it is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. I find this interesting because what is sinful about Jesus turning a stone into bread? Like a little bit later, he's going to multiply uh, bread and, and feed a bunch of people. He's going to turn water in, into wine. So what about turning a, a stone into bread is, is inherently sinful? The, the text also, I think, suggests that the fast that he was on is, is over. These 40 days of fasting have come to completion, and so it's not like he was still bound by a fast. So what exactly is, is sinful about, about what the devil is seeking to tempt him with? Well, I think we get our answer if we go back and see where Jesus is quoting this. You'll notice that he wrote, it is written. 
Right, and so what he's referring to is Deuteronomy chapter 8. And here is the, 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 the part or the passage that, that Jesus is quoting from. Deuteronomy, uh, written by Moses, it's addressed to the Israelites, and here's what it says in, in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years. Again, this is Moses talking to the Israelites. To humble and test, to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart. Whether or not you would keep his commands, he humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. What was the purpose of God leading the Israelites into the desert for 40 years? To show them the condition of their heart. And what did it show about their heart? Well, you can read about their time in the wilderness, and it's not pretty. It's grumbling after complaining, after more complaining, after more grumbling. It culminates where they, they look at Moses and they're so frustrated and angry about this time in the wilderness that they say, you know what? It was better when we were back in Egypt. When we were slaves to Pharaoh and he was killing our firstborn sons, that was better then. We need to go back to Egypt. How ridiculous. You see, the, 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 the thing that was revealed about the heart of the Israelites as, as God brought them through a season of scarcity was that they didn't trust him that they were not obedient to him, that they weren't faithful to him. I'm a, a bit of the laughing stock of um, the staff right now in Northview uh, because a few Sundays ago, I woke up early and went out to my vehicle to go drive somewhere and um, all four of my tires were missing. Our Dodge Caravan was on blocks on, on one side and, and the other side was just like dropped on the rotors. I don't know, I'm not a mechanic. It was just dropped down. And on all four tires were stolen, rims were stolen. Um, and I remember the first instinct on my head was like to look around my neighbors and I noticed that all of them still had their tires. And I was like, like what is going on? And I was kind of frustrated because I looked up the road and I was like, that neighbor's a jerk. And they, why didn't they take his tires? Why did they take mine? And then we drive a Dodge Caravan. Like, so if you're on Facebook Marketplace and you see a good deal on Dodge Caravan tires, let me know. Uh, but second of all, you know what bubbled up in my heart when, when there was this moment of scarcity, when something was taken from me? I was concerned about how I'm supposed to pay and, and buy new winter tires. I was frustrated with God. See, and now this is a silly example. But when God brought me in, into this tiny little moment of scarcity, what bubbled up in my heart? Uh, fear, lack of trust. How about the big moments in our lives? When, when we see ourselves maybe going through seemingly pointless pain, tragic loss, severe hunger. What does that reveal about our hearts? You see, Jesus was faithful during his season of scarcity in the wilderness. For 40 days, he didn't eat. And, this, and Satan comes to him and says, you're the son of God. Like, turn that bread, turn that stone into bread and, and eat it. There's nothing wrong with that. And yet Jesus looks at him and says, no, I 100% trust the provision of my Father. No doubt. Perfect trust in the provision and in his timing. Jesus has unmatched faithfulness. The second test that Satan gives him is uh, he takes him uh, to, uh, in some kind of a vision experience or, or, or whatever, but he tells him and shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It's been given to me. 
and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Now, it's one thing to say whether or not Satan had the authority to give Jesus the, like, uh, the authority and the kingdoms and stuff. Uh, not likely. He had some authority. We, we, we know that, that in Scripture. So it's likely a half-truth that he's telling Jesus. But what's interesting about it is what he is offering Jesus is rightly his. See, in, in Psalm chapter 2, for example, but also throughout Scripture, uh, it, it's, a, it's a passage that, that is kind of quoted or, or proven to be a, a prophecy by God during the baptism. Uh, you are my son is, is the line that, that's pulled out of there. And right after that, it says that you're going to be given all the authority in the world. All, all the kingdoms are yours. So Satan is offering Jesus something that is rightly his, but he's doing it on his terms. So here's the interesting thing. Satan asked Jesus to worship him. What does it mean to, to worship Satan? Well, I think the answer is clear, and, and it's in the text. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only is Jesus' response to Satan. You see, to worship Satan is to serve Satan. It's to obey Satan. It's to do his, to do his will, to do his, his bidding. We see this throughout Scripture, that, that worship, or sorry, obedience is an act of, of worship. Maybe no more, no more places in Scripture do we see this more clearly than, than in John chapter 14. Jesus is talking to his disciples, and, and countless times he's like, so those who obey my commandments, uh, those are the ones who love me. And if you love me, you're, you're going to obey my commandments. And he goes on and on, like, we get it, Jesus. And then at the end, he says, the world knows that I love the Father because I did exactly what his will commanded me to do. To, to obey is to worship. My uh, youngest son, uh, his name's Oliver, he's two years old. Uh, he is firmly on team Adam. Uh, the Spirit of God needs to do a, a work in, in that heart and regenerate that. Uh, please, Lord, any, anytime now. Uh, but one of the things that uh, we struggle with Oliver with is putting him to bed. Uh, so a few nights ago, I, uh, I lay him down in his bed, and I, I tuck him in. I say, all right, Ollie, uh, it's time for bed. Dad loves you. Kiss him on the, on the forehead. And it's like, go to bed now. Okay. So I, I leave, close the door, and it's like maybe 30 seconds later, Dad, I'm thirsty. So I go on the bring his water bottle, give him a sip of water. I say, okay, Ollie, it's, it's time for bed now. Okay. So I leave, close the door. Next thing, I go, Dad, I have to go pee. Okay, so you go open the door, take him out, take off his, like, Pants up and put him on the thing. He doesn't actually go pee because he doesn't have to. He's just trying to stall. And so you put him back. He's like, hey, Ollie, it's time for bed. Dad, I need a hug and a kiss. It's like, oh, my goodness. And so you go in there, and I'm, I'm at the point now where it's like, okay, listen, bud. I, I love you, but it's time for, time for bed. You need to listen to Dad. So I, I leave, and it's not that much longer after where our oldest son, who shares a room with Oliver, says, Dad, Oliver's climbing on my bunk bed again. And I'm like, okay, bud, but I'm going to have to put on your sleep sack. And so you put it on. I'm like, Ollie, it's, it's time for bed. And he looks up to me and he says, Dad, I love you so, so much. Really? Like, to be honest, the, the first thing that went through my head when he said that was this. If you love me so, so much, you would do what I'm asking you to do. Like, I, I'm your father. I, I love you. I've showed that throughout the day that I love you. I, I know what's best for you. And right now, what's best for you is for you to go to bed. You need, you need sleep for your development, for your attitude, for my sake. You need to go to bed. And, and, and Oliver, if you truly love me so, so much, you would listen to me. You would obey me. Right. See, what, what Scripture helps us understand is that our profession, God, I love you so, so much. Dad, I love you so, so much, should match our actions. But it doesn't always. Right? So look at your own life. Does your profession match your walk? 
You see, Jesus here in this second test or the second temptation that, that Satan gives him shows us that his profession does match his walk. He, he's offered something that is rightfully his, and Jesus refuses to, to give in. He refuses to not be obedient to the leading and to the will of the Father, so much so that Jesus is willing to obey the Father until death. How many of us can say the same? How many of us have a profession, a love for the Lord, a a claim that we are willing to follow him even until death and actually would? Jesus' faithfulness, Jesus' obedience to the Father is unmatched. Finally is is the third test that Satan gives him, and it says that he takes him to the highest point on on the temple, and he basically says, uh, you should jump. Like, the scriptures are are clear, and he's full of it, and and Satan quotes a few places in scripture where where Satan's going to protect him, and he says, jump. Like, surely God's going to send angels to save you. The the point on the temple uh, that uh, most scholars point out is probably the southeast corner. It's high, and and, and what is down below it is is the Kidron Valley. So roughly, they're standing at a point that is 200 to 300 feet down below. It's it's a big jump. And Satan says, go for it. God will save you. And Jesus responds, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, the idea of, of testing God is, is an interesting one. Uh, we don't have time to get into to all of it, but the, the type of test that Jesus is referring to is, once again, helped by understanding the, the part of Scripture that he's quoting. And this time, he's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, and here's what it says. Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. Now, what he's referring to, what Massa is referring to, is, is a time where God was leading again the Israelites through the wilderness, And they came to a place where they didn't find any water. So immediately realizing that there was no water at this this place where they they turned on Moses and started demanding, we we want water and and you've led us here and we're all going to die. The the story kind of culminates at at the end and and they say, did God bring us out here to die? Is the Lord even among us or not? See, the type of, of testing that Jesus is talking about here is, is, is a, a testing that makes presumptions about God's character. It, it accuses, his, accuses him of, of not being loving or not being good. It, it's a demand of something on our own terms. In the West, uh, this is hard for us. You see, we live in a, a culture that is uh, defined by the amount of comfort that we can have. Every, you got, we got to be careful with, with commercials. Every commercial is calling us to, to, to pursue comfort and to pursue more because we deserve it. And so when, when suffering does enter our life, even little bits of, of suffering, like your tires going missing, we shake our fist at God and say, how dare you? I don't deserve this. Think of the suffering that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, had to endure. Right? So it says at the end of this text that uh, when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him for an opportune time. Now, now, this opportune time, I think there was many opportune times. I mean, even in the next chapter, uh, Jesus has some dealings with some of Satan's minions. But certainly this, this opportune time climaxed in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus was, was brought face to face with the fact that, that God was going to pour out his wrath on all of, all of Team Adam, all of humanity, who is, is righteously condemned because of their sin, because of, because of Adam's sin, Jesus was going to, to, to receive the punishment of, of all of that. And, and it causes him to, to, to stumble. 
he's sweating drops of blood. I don't think it's, it's unhelpful to think that Jesus is having a legitimate panic attack in the garden as he realizes that the wrath of God is about to come upon him. And he's praying and he says, God, take this cup away from me. I don't want to drink your cup of wrath. At that moment, I don't doubt that Satan and all of his minions perked up a little bit. I don't doubt that they thought that this is the moment. This is the moment where, where Jesus is he's face to face with the fact of what he actually has to go through now. What he has to suffer because of the mission that, that God the Father has called him on. And he's, he's going to back out. He's going to refuse to do it. It's, it's, it's going to work. And all of his minions are attentively paying attention and watching this moment. And then Jesus delivers the decisive blow when he says, Yet not my will, but yours be done. In the face of insurmountable suffering, Jesus remains steadfastly faithful to God the Father. What about your life? In the face of suffering, big or small, is it marked by steadfast faithfulness, obedience? Not my will, Father, but yours be done. See, what, no matter what Satan threw at Jesus in that wilderness, he responded with perfect obedience. His faithfulness, his devotion to the Father was unmatched. Jesus is the better representative than Adam. Jesus' faithfulness is unmatched. What does that mean for us? Well, I hope, unfortunately, I, I do hope that as we went through this, you realize that Jesus is so much better than you. Like, I look at my, my life this very last week, and it's not marked by unmatched faithfulness, by perfect obedience to the Father, not even close. It's marked by sin. See, if anything, reflecting on this passage should help us understand that, that Jesus is, is so perfect and so holy and so righteous, and we are so not. We are firmly entrenched in Team Adam. We don't even, we don't even deserve to be considered to be part of, of Team Christ, to be represented by Christ. And yet, according to the gospel, for Christians, if you've received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, we are no longer considered condemned sinners. That's not what we are. It's what we used to be. We're not condemned sinners anymore because the unmatched faithfulness of Jesus the unmatched faithfulness that he displayed in the wilderness is credited to us. We are firmly entrenched on team Jesus because the better Adam has come. So, fellow condemned sinners, I mean, sorry, let's use the language that the Bible uses. So, fellow saints, righteous ones, redeemed people, beloved children, sons and daughters, chosen ones, Servants of God, disciples, friends of God, heirs of Christ, citizens of heaven, holy ones of God. Why don't we worship God this week? Worship the God who mercifully sent his son Jesus to be the better representation, who showed his unmatched faithfulness that, that no man could, could ever do, became our better representative. Why don't we worship that God by being obedient to him this week? See, uh, my wife and I have moved a lot. I think we've lived in seven houses in 10 years of marriage. That's too much. Uh, we want to stick in, in mission for, for a while now. Uh, Lord, you heard that. 
uh, and, and we don't want to we don't move for, for a long time. We want we want to stick it out and, and, and build build a home and become part of, of that community. But when you move, you do realize that uh, people often come to the house and look for the previous owners. Right? So particularly in Camrose, that the person that lived in our house, her, her name was Laura prior to us, um, would be, was very generous. She gave to lots of different organizations and stuff. So at the beginning, lots of people would come, uh, whether it was for this charity or this organization, and they knock on the door and, is Laura available? We, she gave last year, we want to... And, and rather than meet generous Laura at the door, they meet the new owner, Jesse, the cheap Mennonite who isn't willing to give to the various charities that they want money from. Martin Luther, when, when picking up on, on this idea or this metaphor a little bit, he says this, Well, when the devil comes knocking upon the door of my heart and asks, Who lives here? The dear Lord Jesus goes to the door and says, Martin Luther used to live here, but he's moved out. Now I live here. The devil, seeing the nail-pierced hands and the nail-pierced sides, takes flight immediately. Who lives in your heart? Is it self or Jesus? Friends, this week, the devil is going to come at the most opportune times in our lives. He's going to knock on the door of our heart and he's going to tempt us. This is what he does. So maybe it's going to be after a long day's work when your patience is thin. Maybe it's going to be late at night when you're tired and scrolling through your phone. Maybe it's going to be after an exhausting day with your kids. Maybe it's going to be in the face of tragic loss. Maybe it's going to be in, in, a, in a time where, where you witness and are overwhelmed with the evil that's in this world. The devil will come at an opportune time. Let's take a page from Jesus' playbook this week and remind the devil when he comes knocking that it is written, it is no longer I who live, but Christ, the one who stood the test of every single one of your stupid lies and temptations. It is that Christ who lives in me. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Jesus is so much better. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful for your grace and for your mercy for the fact that you would take condemned sinners like me, condemned sinners like, like us, who are firmly and deservingly on Team Adam, and you would send your son Jesus to be a better representative, to, to, to be perfectly obedient, to show unmatched faithfulness up until the point of death, and Father, that he would be willing to be our new representative, that he would give us that faithfulness, that righteousness, so that we can stand before you holy and righteous and redeemed. Father, may we understand and appreciate just how good and beautiful and amazing Jesus is. Father, what he saved us from, and may as we, as we plumb the depths of the distance between our righteousness and Jesus' righteousness, that it will help us respond in worship this week, and a worship that finds its fruit in obedience. Father, may that fuel us to be a people who look at the temptations of this world who listen to the eyes of the enemy and remind him that it is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. Father, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil this week. We pray these things in your son's precious name. Amen.